St. James, it's good to see you guys, and welcome to everybody who's uh, joining us on the live stream this morning as well. Uh, just some uh, quick announcements, and then we have a couple of guest announcers, if that's the right word. So everything is on schedule for uh, today and for this week. Um, youth confirmation, uh, Bible study, adult Bible study at 1230. Let me know if you want to be a part of that. Uh, some of us are going to pray here this evening at 530. If you want to join us, um, uh, please feel free to do so. Uh, there's a life team meeting at 7 p.m. Uh, men's Bible study, women's Bible study, um, youth group. Oh, you can look through there. I'm not going to read all of them. You guys know how to read. Uh, point out a couple things. Uh, we're going to do VBS uh, one day um, this year on a Sunday, and uh, July 11th, and we're going to try to make it a community outreach thing. If you have any questions about that, you can talk to Jen Weber. She's kind of spearheading that. Uh, the new church uh, mailing address. Um, that's here in the bulletin as well. And then um, Jared made the announcement last week. I'm going to go ahead and uh, repeat it again this week. So starting next Sunday, we're going to go to our new, probably temporary service times um, for, the, uh, for right now. Um, where We'll have an 8 o'clock service for those of you who want to have a mask on in the service. And then we'll have a 1045 service uh, for that will be mask optional. And a Bible study will happen here on site at 9.30. The adults will be upstairs, and we can spread out in here. And then the kids uh, and the teenagers can meet downstairs. Um, th thanks for, for all of you who, and I, a bunch of you did, filled out the surveys. That was super helpful. Um, I would like to assure you that this is uh, temporary. I'm not, I'll, I'll say this again, I've said it a bunch of times before, I'm not a fan of two services I don't like separating into two different churches. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what we're having to do right now. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's evil. Like, if we were so packed that we had to do it, that would be one thing. But even then, the goal would be to get to a spot in the future somehow where we could have just one service. I know um, a ton of you said in the surveys that you want your 9 o'clock service back. Uh, some of you because you like the time. Some of you because it means one service and we're all together. Some of you both. And that really is our goal, too, is to get back to that. And so let's see how this goes with the, the mass service and then the mask optional service, and then we'll go from there. And please keep on giving feedback if, if you have good ideas about how to uh, make things work better. Uh, clearly, we're willing to change our schedule around, uh, not willy-nilly, but on a regular basis, if it makes sense. So, um, uh, yeah, let us know what you think. Uh, that'll be next week, okay? All right, uh, guest announcers, uh, Stacey Stocky and then Dave Molnar. Hi, good morning. 
We have some fun youth group happenings right now. We're getting ready to go on our missions trip to Minnesota. And at the very last second, we decided to try to gather some blessing bags. Uh, kind of think Operation Christmas Child boxes, plus like just a blessing bag of like personal hygiene items, things like that. And our goal, we're going to try to bring 500 of these things. We're halfway there, guys. It's crazy. Um, I created an Amazon wish list for the public. If you're interested in donating, I have items out there. You can shop on Amazon, have them shipped straight to my house. Or if you prefer to go somewhere else, the kinds of things I'm looking for is like sidewalk chalk, bubbles, toothbrushes, toothpaste, a washcloth, a bar of soap, a deck of playing cards, fun things that they can do this summer that we'll hand out to the kids on the reservation while we're there. Uh, my next thing is if you are in sixth grade through high school, senior high school, a senior, come to youth group. We meet on Tuesday nights here at the church, and we want you to be a part of what we're doing. We have a lot of fun things planned this summer. In July, we're going to go do a small little VBS pop-up in Fairmont City at the Christian Activity Center there, so we're going to start planning for that next when we return from this trip. But we have lots of fun things in store, so come join us. Thank you. Hey, uh, just real quick, um, this is kind of a last minute thing we're throwing together, but there's a, a, a person in our church who is moving and has a lot of work to do on their old house to get that ready to sell, and then some work to do on the new house before they move in. So uh, we're thinking about having, we're planning on having a work day, um, e either this Saturday or Sunday. Uh, we haven't totally decided which one yet, but if you are interested in helping out with that at all, um, please talk to me and let me know, and, and I'll kind of get you the details and figure out when works best for everybody. So a work day, either this Saturday or Sunday, so let me know. Thanks. Thank you, Stacy and Dave. Uh, okay, let's stand, and we'll continue in worship. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray God Almighty to have mercy on me, forgive me all my sins, and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord. I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray, God Almighty, to have mercy on me, forgive me all my sins, and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord grant you pardon, forgiveness, in remission of all your sins. Amen. Please remain standing for the opening hymn.
psalm for this morning is a few verses here from Psalm 28. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is from Genesis 3. Some people call this uh, the first gospel. 
uh, because it's this announcement. Right after Adam and Eve rebel against God, they want to be like God, and they rebel against God to try and get that power from him. And because of that, uh, the whole thing kind of crumbles. And when I say thing, I know that's vague. Like everything crumbles, relationships, the environment, our own bodies and souls. God has a chance to say, well, you guys screwed this up. Sorry, you're going to have to deal with it. But instead, he promises them that he's going to fix everything by crushing the serpent's head with the seed, the offspring, the child of the woman. So Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, I'm not even going to set this up. This Second Corinthians 4 and 5 reading gets clipped off a little short for my taste. Uh, as Paul goes on, he ends up talking about uh, this new body that God has prepared for us, which he's bringing down here to clothe us with when Jesus returns. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been writ written, I believed and so I spoke. He quotes from a psalm. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we don't lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Would you stand uh, for the reading of the Holy Gospel, please? This is the Holy Gospel uh, from Mark chapter 3. Then Jesus went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family, when Jesus' family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay. Um, just a reminder, so this summer, we're going to be reading through the gospel readings uh, from the lectionary, and they're all from the gospel of Mark. I think there's three weeks in the middle uh, where we talk about John 6, which is also going to be good. And what we're going to be thinking about is the kingdom of God, and we're working on this principle that the stuff that happens between Jesus' birth and his death actually is important. I know that like for, for a lot of especially traditional Christians, it's, you know, what do you do with that stuff? It's, you know, the Apostles' Creed, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, the Apostles' Creed jumps right from his virgin birth to suffered under Pontius Pilate. Almost like the Apostles' Creed doesn't know what to do with the life of Jesus. Typically, we've thought about it in terms of like, okay, he's teaching, he's trying to prove that he's God. That's one of the things that we say he's doing. Or he's trying to teach about love. Um, those things might be true. That's not really the main point. The main point is, is that in the life of Jesus, not just his death and resurrection, as vital, as essential as that is, but the, the actual life and ministry of Jesus, God is doing this new and fresh thing that he promised he would do from ages past, that he promised he would do in Genesis chapter 3, and that is to bring about his kingdom, to crush the head of the serpent to establish justice and righteousness and physical health and mental health here on this earth. Jesus is starting to do that. Now, what Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see this, is the same thing that the early church is doing in the book of Acts. And so the basic principle that we're going to be working from this summer is, let's use the Gospels as this sort of guide to be doing kingdom work here now, to be doing the mission that God has called us to be on. Do you understand, does everybody understand the underlying, I, I, I'm intentionally, this isn't just me, I, what I was about to say was going to sound sort of like cocky, and it, it wasn't meant to be cocky. I'm intentionally subverting the old goal of Christianity that many of us grew up with, which is Jesus died so that you can go to heaven when you die. 
which, okay, so that's great. So what am I supposed to be doing in the meantime? Well, you know, do some good deeds and say your prayers and uh, tithe. And uh, someday Jesus will come and will get us to the main goal, which is heaven. And Jesus never, ever talks about that. Instead, what Jesus says is that I've come here to establish my kingdom here on this earth. That's the guiding principle for what we're going to be doing today and, and for the rest of the summer as well. Now, the text this morning is a frame story, which uh, Mark loves frame stories. He has a handful of them in his gospel. A frame story is, you can recognize this when, when, when we read it maybe, is he starts off with a story, pauses it in the middle, tells another story, then comes back to the first story and finishes it up at the end. That's a frame story. So it's almost like a sandwich with two parts. You know, you have story one, which has a beginning and then an end, and then story two is tucked in the middle. And Mark, actually in a couple of weeks, we'll see another example of this. Why does Mark do that? He likes doing these. It's because he's trying to emphasize that these two stories go together and they should be used to interpret each other. And in fact, that's what we see happening here. There's two stories, one about what Jesus' mom and brothers think about him, and then what the scribes think about him. And these two are two different options for ways to think about Jesus. In fact, um, uh, we'll, fo- we'll focus on those two options here at the beginning. But basically what this text, I'll tell you kind of where we're going here, what this text, this text tells us something about Jesus. This text also tells us something about us, about followers of Jesus, those of you who are followers of Jesus, And then this text, I'll wrap it up by talking about what this text says about the kingdom of God. So first of all, what does this text say about Jesus? Let's go back to that bit about his family in verse 20. It's right at the beginning of our reading. Jesus went home and the crowds gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. So those who loved Jesus thought he was crazy. They thought he was crazy. This is not the only time that we're told that people close to him thought that he was insane. Why did they think he was crazy? Well, there's a couple of big reasons. One that we'll be familiar with and one that's sort of foreign to us. First of all, celebrity, the notion of celebrity and our weirdo love affair as Americans with celebrities is a completely novel thing. It's just been made up within the past 100 years, actually. This notion that there are people who are so interesting and so important that you just want to know everything about them. And, you know, in our culture, it typically has to do with the entertainment world, whether it's, you know, sports or movies or music or money. I know that right now we're in the middle of a big Prince Harry and Meghan Markle frenzy. I I don't know how the British royals somehow always seem to manage to, to fall into this category. But according to my Yahoo newsfeed, they're celebrities that I probably need to be paying attention to. This is like just a normal occurrence for us that there are, and, and every little subculture has them. But, you know, even like this is so, this is super weird and actually pretty abnormal. Even the Christian subculture has these like rock star preachers and book writers and bloggers that like. Um, I was talking to a friend of one of them actually several years ago, a, a friend of John Piper's who said. If you know who John Piper is, he's one of these Christian rock stars. Not that he intentionally advocates or wants it for himself. I don't know if he does or not. But the friend was telling me he can't actually go to a hotel at a conference and leave his hotel room. He orders room service. If he goes down to the lobby, there's a bunch of like theology fanboys who like gather around him and he can't even move. It's so bizarre. 
Jesus' family knows it's bizarre. The only celebrities in the ancient world are the bad guys. The only people who have groupies are the kings, the Herods, the Caesars, the people that you don't want to be around because they're liable to kill you if you look at them wrong. Jesus' family knows that it's weird in verse 20 that all these people are like crowding around him. Let's go and get him because this guy's lost his mind. There's another, we're not familiar with that. Like we, like a lot of us, I don't know if you do, I, I don't really, crave celebrity. Like there's sort of like, I wish that I was famous or I wish that I was rich. Not in the ancient world. There is something though that, you, that we will be familiar with this and that is that Jesus is subverting the normal way that people do life. And anybody who does this gets called crazy. Anybody who acts in a way that's not normal. So uh, just as a point of reference, a blog post from Psychology Today called Who's the Crazy One? You know, like contemplating the question of like maybe the people that we think are crazy are actually the sane ones and we're the crazy ones. How do you know who's crazy? Not in a clinical sort of sense. I'm not talking about mental health here. I'm talking about just like, sort of like a cultural notion of like, man, that person's crazy. How do, you, how do we define that? And in in this blog post in Psychology Today says there's basically a few questions that we use, all of us subconsciously use to judge who are the crazy ones in our group and who aren't. You wouldn't do things the way they do. That's one of them. Like they do things odd, different. They don't make any sense to you. You've never heard, seen, or been around someone like that. They're from a different background, culture, and or point of view. They act in an offensive or disturbing manner. That one's a little bit darker than the, the previous ones. They create fear or resistance within you. These are, these are all the ways that we gauge, like, that person's odd, that person's weird. And in fact, this is what Jesus is doing. He's considered to be insane because all the way the society normally works in his culture and in many ways in our culture, but maybe not to the extent as in their culture, he subverts those things. Jesus is the guy who says, if you don't hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciple in the Gospel of Luke. That's a weird thing for anybody at any time to say, especially in this culture where the nuclear family is everything, way more than in our culture. Like they, it's unheard of in their culture for somebody to move away from their parents. In fact, children frequently into adulthood would live in the same house as their parents. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says things like, if you don't hate your father and mother, we'll talk about like what he means just briefly, if he literally means that in just a few seconds. Somebody comes to him and says, Jesus, at another point says, Jesus, I'd like to follow you. I'd like to be one of your disciples. But my dad just, is, dad died I need to go take care of that. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead and you follow me. Which, again, in any culture is a crazy thing to say. You would never say to somebody like, okay, so your, your, your parents died. Don't worry about that. The important thing is to follow me. You would, like, you, would be, you would be super angry at me if I said that to you. It's kind of a crazy thing to say, right? A rich guy comes to Jesus and says, what, what should I do? In the Jewish worldview, even more so in our worldview, there's some parallels. Money is a huge sign of success in any culture, right? Like a certain sort of financial success. For them, though, it wasn't just a sign of financial success. It was also a sign that God has favored them. Like riches is a sign that God somehow likes you more. So a rich person comes to Jesus and says, what do I do? And Jesus says, like, sell everything you have and give all the money to the poor and then come follow me. Again, that's a crazy thing to say in any culture. It's, it's not a normal thing to say. It's no wonder that people said he was crazy. 
It's no wonder that the early Christian church was crazy because they advocated these same principles. In Acts chapter 17, some Christians in the city of Thessalonica are brought out into the, the, the town Agora and beaten. And the reason why it's given is, is because these are the people that have turned the world upside down. These are the people that have come and like messed. And the follow-up reason is because they say that there's another king besides Caesar. Again, these are kind of three big things right here. Family, if anybody doesn't hate their father and mother. Money, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then you can be my disciple. Political agenda, we all in every culture, but us too, we like side with a certain political agenda and we just assume this is how things get done. And when somebody comes along and says, actually, there's another king besides the Democrat Party or the Republican Party, we all are like, ah, that person's kind of crazy. This person's trying to turn the world upside down. This is why Jesus is considered by his loved ones um, to be crazy. Now, he's not trying to get rid of these things, right? He's not trying to get rid of politics or money or family. You know, after all, Jesus, the Bible tells, you know, husbands, love your wives, So Jesus isn't saying, you know, you should get married, but then you should hate your spouse. He's creating an intentional subversion where all these important things, money, politics, family, are still in your life, vital parts of your life, but no longer function as your identity marker. You are no longer, this is my politics, that's who I am. Or my socioeconomic status, that's who I am. Or I'm all about family, my family is everything. So that's the first two, like a lot of like conservative Christians are like, yeah, yeah, politics bad, money bad. And then you start poking at family values and people start getting uncomfortable. They start saying things like, this guy's kind of crazy. This is what Jesus is saying, right? In fact, this is what he says down in the very last part of the story. His, his mother and his brother show up and, and somebody comes to him and says, hey, your family's waiting outside. You know, they're going to take you to the loony bin or whatever they're going to do. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Well, that's an easy answer not just biologically, but especially in this culture. His primary loyalty is to be to his mother, probably by now widowed, and his brothers. But instead, Jesus says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever, he's looking out at those who sit around him, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is radically shifting the center of everyone's existence. All the things that you think are important, all the things that we think we need to make up our identity are now shoved to the periphery and Jesus insists that he's supposed to be in the center. He's a crazy guy. So his loved ones say he's crazy, but his enemies say that he's evil. Look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, this guy's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of the demons he cast out demons. So it's not just that he's crazy, it's that he's working for Satan. He's working for ultimate evil. This guy is the ultimate evil. Now Jesus' response, so, so why would they say that? Because in the first century, like in our century, there are agenda groups. I just talked about political agenda groups a few minutes ago. There are agenda groups. And if you fit into that agenda group, you are good. If you don't fit into that political agenda group, then you're bad. We all do this. Right? And in Jesus' day, there was a handful of options. There were Pharisees, very, very concerned with upholding a high standard of moral purity as a way to demonstrate to God that we do believe in you, we want you to come and rescue us. There were the Sadducees who were opposed to the Pharisees. The Sadducees were kind of the, the, the rich political power in Jerusalem who said God is on the side of the Romans now. 
we will be on God's side if we just let the Romans do what they do and obey them and everybody like just play ball with the Romans. There were the Essenes who said, all of you are filthy. We're moving out to the desert. We don't want any part of you or your temples or your synagogues or even your villages. We're going to form, form our own monastic communities out in the desert. That was the Essenes. There were the Zealots who said, actually, you know what, God, God's waiting on us to take the first step of faith which is, let's start killing the Romans. Let's start assassinating the Roman governors and the Roman soldiers who are in our region. And when God sees that we believe him enough to attack the Romans with physical force, then God will rush to vindicate us and be on our side once we show him that we have that faith. There's all these different options. Jesus doesn't fit into any one of these options because Jesus is basically his own option. He just got done talking about him saying, you know, you follow, following me is, that's the center of the universe, even more so than family or money or other political agendas. So that makes him evil. He doesn't fit into my group. The scribes come down, the scribes are probably more along the Pharisee lines. Jesus doesn't fit into their group, and so, well, he clearly is working for the bad guy. He's clearly evil. How does Jesus respond to this, though? Jesus' response is, I'm not crazy. He doesn't say it like this. I'm not crazy. I'm not evil. Instead, I'm here inaugurating the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' response. Now, to the scribes, his first move is one of logic. You come to me and you say that you're casting out demons by the prince of demons? It doesn't make any sense. Look what he says in verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. If Satan is divided against, against himself, he can't stand, but he's coming to an end. What, what's Jesus saying? Like, look, you guys don't like Satan, right? Okay. So may, I say that I'm not working on the side of Satan. You say that I am working on the side of Satan. Either way, though, Satan's losing. If I'm working against Satan, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I'm working for Satan, then Satan's a moron, and he's destroying himself, and he's about to end. Either way, Satan's about to end. This doesn't make any sense what you're saying. But instead, kingdom power. That's, that's what Jesus says is happening. Verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus goes to, it's kind of weird the stories Jesus tells to make his points. He's like, say I want to burgle somebody's home. Say I want to rob your stuff. And I come in and you're standing there. What do I do? Do I just like calmly walk over and start taking your stuff? No, you're not going to let me. What do I have to do first? If I want to steal your stuff, I got to come into your house and I have to tie you up. Then I can steal your stuff. Jesus' point is the reason why I can cast demons out is because I've tied up the strong man. Because I've tied up Satan. This is, we're going to come back to this in a few minutes. This is huge. Is this not what everybody wants? I, you, you might be an atheist. You might be like the most devout person in the world. And wherever you are in the spectrum in between, almost everybody, except for the people who are intentionally, philosophically antagonistic, whether a, atheist or hardcore believer, everybody agrees that there is an element of evil in the world. That evil isn't just a sort of a random, made-up predilection, you know, I don't like it, you don't like it, let's call it evil. 
Everybody agrees that there is such a thing as evil in the world. And here comes somebody along and says, I've tied up the evil one. You, you, you might not think that there's actually a person, like a Satan-type person who's evil. But Jesus' claim is that I've tied up the evil one. I'm able to do what I do because Satan has now been bound. Okay, we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. This is what Jesus is. Three options in the story, right? He's crazy. He's a bad guy, or he's the guy who's tied up the strong man. He's the kingdom of God guy. In fact, this is what C.S. Lewis says in uh, Mere Christianity. This is kind of a famous, some of you will, will, will have read this before. Lewis says this is basically the three options that we have. The three options of this story are basically the three options that we're given. And what Lewis is fighting against is the notion that Jesus was this wise moral teacher, not not the divine son of God, not the binder of the strong man, not the savior of the world, not the crucified and risen one, but a sage, a teacher of love. Oh, by the way, I mean, Jesus was in many ways a sage and a teacher of love. But Lewis is trying to insist that he's much more than that. Here's what Lewis says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing, the really foolish thing that people say about Jesus, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say, Lewis says. A man, who, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, like Jesus' family thought, or else he would be the devil of hell, like the scribes thought. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is Lewis's point. This is the point of the story this morning, is that these are the three categories that we're left to work with. He's either crazy or he's evil. He's a megalomaniac. Anybody who would say, abandon your father and mother and follow me is either God or he's insane, or that's just downright evil. Or he is who he claims to be. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the binder of the strong man. Now, can I critique Lewis real briefly here? There was a fourth option that he didn't bring up, probably because he just didn't think about it, and it's this. I don't have time to talk about this this morning, unfortunately. But I do, I do want to acknowledge it, because some of you are thinking it. The fourth option is, is that none of this is true. That whoever Mark was, he just made this stuff up. It's all legend. Now, there are good reasons, really good, not religious reasons, not leap of faith reasons, but really good historical reasons to read the Gospel of Mark and take it at face value. I don't have time to talk about that right now, unfortunately. I will later, though, I promise, at some point. Here's the other thing. Lewis, I think, is wrongly focusing on Jesus' words. Lewis says, uh, Lewis says Jesus claimed to be God, Actually, Jesus doesn't say a whole lot about, like, I'm God. Instead, Jesus does God things. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus calms storms. Jesus starts multiplying food like crazy. Jesus binds the strong man. This is an important difference. I want you to follow me just for a second here. Jesus did not come to say wise things. Not even to say, I'm God and I want to prove it to you. Because the point isn't to tell us that he's God. The point is to actually bring the kingdom of God into the world. 
It's not, it's, 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 it's super helpful to believe that Jesus is God. It's essential, right? But if it never moves on from there, if it never gets down to kingdom, rubber meeting the road, if the bind, Jesus might be God, but if the strong man is not bound, then none of this is important. Lewis is interested in what Jesus says. Jesus is interested in binding the strong man. Right? This, okay, so this is who Jesus is. Uh, who are we? What, what can this text say about us? Verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, uh, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Okay, before we get to the positive stuff here, what does this text tell us about us? We have to talk about this unforgivable sin, which has caused some of you a lot of consternation. Some of you are like, oh, interesting. Doesn't really bother me that much. Some of you, though, have been tormented. I, I've this has come up several times in my sermons in the past several months. Some of you are tormented by the possibility that you at some point in the past have committed the unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? In verse 29, it's whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Okay, so what does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Really quick here, and I want to be sensitive, and I also want to acknowledge that I don't have time like in a sermon like this to totally unpack this. But let me give you two pointers about what's going on here with the unforgivable sin. First of all, it's super important that it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In fact, in, Ma in Matthew's version of this, Jesus actually says, you will be forgiven if you blaspheme against me. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you won't be forgiven. That's weird. What does he mean? Well, who's the Holy Spirit? Th th don't, don't, think about, don't think about the book of Acts. It hasn't happened yet at this point. Jesus' listeners, who would they have thought the Holy Spirit was? Well, they would have known that the Holy Spirit was the one who was promised that when God acted to make things right with the world again, the Holy Spirit would be there to be a key agent. Joel chapter 2 and 3, right? We read that on Pentecost Sunday. The Holy Spirit would be poured out. And what Jesus is saying here is that you guys are not acknowledging that God is doing something powerfully through me. Like You, you can look at me and misunderstand me. That happens a lot. Lots of people have looked at Jesus and thought, I don't like him. Or, he's a great teacher, but that religion stuff's weird. And then, at some point, said, you know what? I think this guy actually is what he was doing. I think he actually is who he claimed to be. That happens. You can look, 2 Corinthians 5 talks about seeing Jesus according to the flesh, and then, like, with human eyes, and then having your eyes opened by the Holy Spirit. But, it's a completely different thing to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus and say, that's a demonic. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Look in verse 30. Uh, so you know, Mark tells us what Jesus said. And then he says in verse 30, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit, describing the scribes. That's a weird thing. Isn't that a weird thing to say right there? For they were saying he has an unclean Okay, Yeah, we just read it, Mark. Like, you're just repeating yourself. We already know that's what he said. Just two verses before, you told us that's what he was saying. Why are you repeating it? Let me tell you why he's repeating it, why I think he's repeating it. I think that the tense of this verb is su super important. For they were saying. He did, Mark doesn't say, for they said it in the past. He says, for they were continually saying it. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, continually committed, is damning. Does that make sense? Like, let me say it this way. When you die, for those of you who are Christians, when you die, there'll be a truckload of sins that you haven't confessed. 
that God forgives. Like there will be this time that you like mouthed off to your wife 30 years before that you just like walked away and didn't even think about it and she was hurt, but she didn't want to say anything because that's a sure way to get you to mouth off even more. You did it and then you kind of forgot about it and you never asked for forgiveness and that sin is just sort of hanging out there somewhere, I guess, right? You know, theoretically. When you die, Jesus is not gonna say, you know what, you believed in me, but there was that time 30 years ago that you mouthed off uh, to your wife. I, I just can't, I, I can't let that go. All these sins that we don't even remember that we've committed are all going to get forgiven on the last day. Lots of sins that we do remember that we do ask for forgiveness for, but lots of sins that we don't remember. But there's one sin that you cannot die with and be forgiven, and that is the sin of blasphemy against the work of the Trinity. If you die saying, I don't believe in Jesus, I think he was a crazy man, or I think he was a bad man, or I don't even really care about him at all. If you die like that, that is an unforgivable sin. Does this make sense? That tense is so important. It's not a sin that you've committed in the past. It's a sin that's continually being committed. All right, that being said, let's forget about the negative stuff. It's easy to focus on like this, what does the unforgivable sin mean? That's not really not the point of the text. The point of the text that I want to focus on is the positive stuff. Who are we? We are the people who've been forgiven of massive amounts of sin. Look back at verse um, uh, 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, you can blaspheme, which is like slandering God's name, crediting, taking the works of God and not giving them proper glory and credit. You can blaspheme and still be forgiven for that. We are the people who've sinned massive amounts against God and have been forgiven. That's who we are in the story. We are the people who are Recognize the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't always live up to the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not always walking with the Spirit, Galatians 5. But we recognize the work of the Spirit, and God has brought us into the life of the Spirit, and we're walking more and more with the Spirit all the time. That's who we are. That's who we are as God's people in the story. Now, finally, and I'll be done. What is this text? We're going to take all these things, take, the, take both these things. What does this text tell us about the kingdom of God? If Jesus is the binder of the strong man, and now we have been the people who've been brought in on his side by being forgiven of all sins, even blasphemy. What does this say about Christian life now? What, what should St. James be doing here in Glen Carbon right now? How should we be living? I'm gonna give you three answers from this story here real quick and then we'll be done. First of all, if the strong man has been bound, let's get to it. That means that Jesus is the strongest power in Glen Carbon. I know it's scary. It's scary to be on mission. It's scary to start conversations. It's scary to, do, to try to do big things. But if, if, if the strong man has been bound, then Jesus wins. If the strong man has been bound, then Jesus is free to do whatever he wants to do. We have to be on mission. We, we, we gotta stop being scared. We gotta stop you know, tucking ourselves away here in this building right here and kind of hiding away from them out there. We have to be on mission. We have to be living out lives of righteousness and love and justice and peace. We have to be proclaiming the gospel, trusting that if the strong man's been bound, people are going to hear the gospel and their lives are going to be changed and the kingdom's going to grow. That's the first thing, super basic, right? Here's the second thing. Whenever the kingdom, like Jesus, is called crazy or evil, it should be because of the kingdom things that it does. Why is Jesus called crazy by his family? Why is he called evil by the scribes? Because He's healing tons of people. His family looks at it and says, that's crazy, we gotta stop him. The scribes say he's casting out demons, he's healing people, he must be evil. 
whenever the world calls us crazy or evil, let it be because we're doing kingdom work and not for any other reason, okay? There's this sort of myth in, um, be super careful here. There's this sort of myth in LCMS churches. I've noticed like at our district convention, there's this story that gets told that goes like this. Our churches are getting smaller and smaller and dying because we just keep preaching the gospel and of course we're going to be dwindling away. Look, if our churches are are dwindling and dying, it's not because we're preaching the gospel. Like if we're going to if we're going to blame the world for rejecting us, do not let it be for anything else and we're doing kingdom work. If the strong man has been bound, the kingdom of God is going to grow. And I, I don't mean it's always going to, we'll get to this and just say, I don't mean it's always going to be fun and that people are going to love us. It's going to be like just a walk in the park. But God's kingdom will grow. There's no reason for churches that preach the gospel. There, there, are, there are demographic reasons. If you're in a church in a town that's like the industry's gone and it's dying, churches will get smaller. But there's no reason for churches in otherwise healthy towns to be dwindling unless they're not on mission unless they're not casting out demons, unless they're not healing the sick, unless they're not preaching the good news to the poor. There's no reason. And when it happens, do not blame Jesus for it. If St. James Strengthson dies, do not say, well, we're just faithful to Jesus and of course the world's gonna hate us. That's not the way it works. The world does not think that Jesus is crazy or evil because of the things that he says. They think that he's crazy and evil because he's doing kingdom work. Another quick sort of related example. Christians being offensive on social media and then claiming that the people on social media are carpet bombing them because I just tell it like it is and and nobody likes it. Look, Jesus isn't going around being offensive to people. He's not even actually being called crazy and evil because of anything he's saying. It's because of what he's doing. Why do we as Christians think that if if we call people idiots on social media, like we're acting, we're like, we're representing Jesus. No, you're not. We have to be on mission. Carpet bombing people on social media is not what Jesus is about. Being on mission, casting out demons, healing the sick, preaching the good news to the poor, giving water to the thirsty. This is what Jesus is about. This is what this story is about. Last thing and then I'll be done. And, uh, this is, this, I want to be encouraging here. Christians should not comp- confuse opposition from the world for failure. This happens a lot. I talk to a lot of you who are like, Nobody likes us, and the whole culture's against us, and they're passing laws against us, and the church is just struggling so much. Is Jesus struggling here? Would you call Jesus struggling here? Like his family calls him crazy. The religious authorities, the political authorities call him evil. You know why, though? Because he's not struggling. You can't confuse the two. Just when the culture is against you, that does not mean failure. What means failure is when you stop being on mission. What means failure is when you and I give up the kingdom work that the crucified and risen Jesus has called us to. This is sort of a prelude to what we're going to be talking about more in the weeks to come, which what is this kingdom work? Here it's casting out demons, right? This is what we need to be about. We need to be fighting back, pushing against the forces of the enemy. Fighting and representing love and justice, gospel power. People are going to be opposed to us. It doesn't mean failure, though doesn't mean failure. And in some ways, in, in Jesus' case, it means success. So let's focus on who Jesus is. Not just, you know, not, not just 
you know, on paper he's God. That's, that's true. Not just like this sort of like category of God. But what does it mean that Jesus is God? It means that the strong man is bound and now the kingdom is unleashed. Jesus is ready and waiting to do great and mighty things. Let's let that be our focus. Okay, stand with me and then we'll pray and we'll have communion. Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us and for being good to us. And we thank you for binding the strong man in ways that we don't even realize anymore. We're, we're so accustomed to your goodness and of the freedom that we have to worship you and to love you. And I'm not talking political freedom, God, but the, the, the freedom in your son, Jesus Christ, to know you and to be able to pray to you and to be able to, in sometimes small and broken ways, but begin learning to love each other and to love our community we thank you for binding the strong man. And God, unleash us. We want you to unleash us to be on your mission, to put you first, to see you do great things, to not blame you for our failures, but to be empowered by your gospel and your Holy Spirit, to be on your kingdom work, Lord, in your mercy. Father, we also pray this morning for everybody who's uh, struggling with uh, pain and with grief, a lot of frustration sometimes whenever this text comes up, Father, you know that some people struggle with this notion of the unforgivable sin and whether they've committed it. God, God, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to their hearts even now as they contemplate the word of this text? That, that, would you let them know that you, are your, that you are their Father and that you love them? Would you convince them that because of the blood of Jesus Christ and because of uh, his resurrection that they are now your child? Father, for everybody else who's struggling with physical illness, uh, with mental illness, with uh, social and psychological brokenness, for those who are mourning this morning, and we pray especially for uh, Nathan Reese's family. Nathan just lost his sister Linda to cancer a couple days ago. Would you give them hope and comfort in you? Would you show that your kingdom has been unleashed and that Linda's destiny is secure, and that even now as she rests in you, she's waiting for the final resurrection when you raise her body and our bodies up from the grave on the last day. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you are a strong man binding God, that you have one final and absolute victory and are now in the process of just mopping up the enemy. God, let us be a part of it. We, we come to you into your throne room asking you by the power of your Holy Spirit to let us be a part of your kingdom work. And we can only ask that, and we can only expect that you'll answer it positively because we know that in Jesus Christ you are our Father. And so we pray this under his blood, by the power of his Spirit, and in his name. Amen. If you're able to, can you confess the words of our uh, Christian, can you confess the words of our Christian faith in the Apostles' Creed? It's printed in your bulletin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Look around, find somebody that you haven't spoken to recently and work on that relationship. Go in peace.